0: Section 33 of Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 15, The Fall of the Whigs, Part 2. The deep dislike with which the Duchess had managed to inspire the Queen greatly helped Harley's schemes. He was a most adroit intriguer and knew well how to turn the weakness of his enemies to his own advantage. He had no wish to strike a violent blow which might rouse his opponents to united and spirited action. He could bide his time and weaken the opposition he met with by sowing discord among the Whigs. The Whig leaders had never quite lost their distrust of Marlborough and Godolphin. Harley did his utmost to revive this distrust— and to convince them that their interests did not lie with those of the treasurer and the general. Some like Somerset and Shrewsbury, he managed to gain over, and he succeeded in entirely destroying the queen's confidence and affection for the treasurer, who had served her so long and so faithfully. Rumours went about the city that Godolphin was to be dismissed and spread terror amongst the moneyed men who considered that the security of the public credit depended upon Godolphin's careful management. For the first time, we hear a fall in the funds spoken of as a sign of the political condition. The Bank of England, in alarm, sent a deputation to the Queen, which represented to her the anxiety that the dismissal of Sunderland had caused, and begged her to make no further changes. She answered by saying that she had no desire to do so at present, and this was taken for an assurance that Godolphin would not be dismissed. Harley did not wish him to be dismissed until he could feel that his disgrace would not lead Marlborough to resign. Little by little the proud duke, who had been accustomed for so many years to manage everything at his pleasure, had been brought to bear patiently one humiliation after another, and in the same way the country was to be gradually accustomed to see the government pass into new hands. It was early in July 1710 that Sunderland was dismissed. During the following month, Godolphin, who met with nothing but coldness from Anne, grew daily more uneasy. On the 6th of August, he begged an audience of the Queen, and remonstrated with her for allowing herself to be governed by secret advisers, whilst her real ministers lost all power. At last he asked her whether it was her wish that he should continue to serve her, and she replied without hesitation, yes. Great, therefore, was his surprise, when next morning he received a note from the Queen telling him that it was impossible for her to continue him any longer in her service, and adding, I desire that instead of bringing the staff to me, you will break it, which I believe will be easier for us both. She promised at the same time to give him a pension, but in spite of her promise, the pension was never paid. Godolphin had managed the public finances in the most honourable manner and with the strictest economy. He came out of office a poor man, and too proud to ask for the pension which was not paid him. He was left in straitened circumstances until the death of his brother increased his fortune. He was a useful and careful public servant. But he was not fit to be the leader of a party. His timidity made him shrink from decided action at the moments when decided action was necessary for his cause. He had no political principles strong enough to make him willing to suffer in their behalf. He seems to have been entirely ruled by Marlborough and the Duchess. But on the other hand, his timid fears never failed to produce their effect upon Marlborough's mind. And continually kept him from acting decidedly in political matters. The disgrace of Godolphin produced a panic in the city. The bank shares fell at once from 140 to 110. Harley's first desire was to restore public confidence. The Treasury was put into a commission, of which he himself was one, and the other members were all men so moderate that Godolphin wrote to Marlborough that the commission would utterly disgust the Tories. Still, in spite of all kinds of reassuring statements, the panic in the city continued, and when the commissioners demanded a new loan shortly after their appointment, it was refused. Godolphin, on the other hand, had never found any difficulty in raising money on easy terms. From these signs, the Whigs hoped that the new commissioners would not be able to keep their places long. They determined, therefore, to keep their offices and wait in the hopes that a favorable turn of events might bring back power into their hands again. Harley, who became Chancellor of the Exchequer and virtual Prime Minister, was very willing to coalesce with the Whigs. He had no liking for the extreme Tories, and wished to govern by means of the moderate men. Marlborough was entreated by Godolphin and the Whigs to remain at his post, and the Queen who wrote herself to tell him of Godolphin's dismissal that he might hear it first from her, promised that he and his army should want for nothing. The news caused Marlborough the deepest anxiety. He could see the effect produced upon the continent by the changes in the English government, and indeed foreigners rated their importance even higher than the English, for they regarded Marlborough as the mainstay of the Grand Alliance, and were terrified at the signs which showed the diminution of his power in England. The Dutch States and the Emperor had even remonstrated with the Queen when Sunderland was dismissed. But Marlborough discouraged foreign interference in the internal affairs of England, for he saw that it did harm rather than good. His only anxiety now seems to have been to prepare for the future by drawing as close as possible to the elector of Hanover. Neither did he neglect, from time to time, to send messages to the pretender— expressing entire devotion to his cause. He did this in the hope of securing his safety in case, as many men thought at that time, the Stuarts should be restored to the English throne. But he was really entirely in favor of the succession of the House of Hanover, and meant to use all his influence in the cause of the Elector. At present, he was determined for many reasons to retain his command. He saw plainly that if he retired, the affairs of the Grand Alliance would fall into confusion. His Whig friends entreated him to keep his post, for they still clung to the hope that the Tory government would be unable to maintain itself, and that they would return triumphantly to power. Besides these considerations, Marlborough's own desires must have led him to wish to keep at the head of an army which he had so long led to victory. If only, as the Queen promised, he could be sure of supplies— he hoped still to bring the war to a triumphant end. In England, change followed change. Harley had at first meant to keep some of the Whigs in office, but he soon found that no arts could gain them over to his cause. The Whigs, who found themselves treated by the Queen with coldness and want of confidence, saw that it was useless to cling to office any longer. On the 21st of September, Parliament was dissolved and by degrees a new government was formed. The change was complete, and every post of importance was given to a Tory. Harley's friend, St. John, a man far more able than himself, became Secretary of State. The new elections gave opportunities for the same manifestations of popular feeling as had accompanied the trial of Sacheverell. The cry everywhere was for the Church, Electors on their way to the Hustings were hustled and knocked down unless they promised to vote for the church candidate. The result was that in the new Parliament the Tories had an overwhelming majority. Harley, not content with having triumphed so far, lost no opportunity of still further strengthening his position. The Tories were quicker than the Whigs to recognize the use that could be made of the press. St. John, himself an accomplished and learned writer, was on terms of intimacy with most of the literary men in the town. Godolphin had found his amusement in cockfighting, betting, and horse-racing at Newmarket. Marlborough's defective education had given him no literary tendencies, and his time and thoughts were so absorbed by the great part he had to play that he had no time for the cultivation of personal tastes. He seems to have cared about no amusements and the only relief he allowed himself was planning the adornment of Blenheim and buying pictures and ordering hangings and carpets to be made for his magnificent house. Both he and Godolphin neglected to pay any attention to the literary men who at that time remained in London. Amongst the leading Whigs, Summers and Halifax were the only two who possessed real cultivation and literary tastes. Both Harley and St. John, saw how easily the public ear might be reached through the press. This was the great age of political pamphlets. The people possessed no reports of the debates in Parliament, and the ministers could not hope to influence them by their speeches in Parliament. The easiest way was to get some clever writer into their confidence and make him employ his pen in their service. Never has literature played so remarkable a part in English politics. Each important event called forth a shower of pamphlets on either side, whilst various writers tried to influence public opinion by little papers on political and social subjects, which appeared daily or weekly, and were the subject of comment and discussion in the coffee houses, then the centre of political life. Literary men no longer lived as they had done in the reign of Elizabeth a wild and careless life in back streets, but they mixed as equals with great politicians and were rewarded for their devotion to their patron's cause by promotion to important political offices. When Harley came into power, the Tories started a political paper called The Examiner to attack the faults of the last government and revile the Duke of Marlborough. At first it was conducted by St. John himself. Prior, and one or two other less important writers. But St. John was quick to find out and gain over to his cause the greatest genius of that age. Dr. Swift had just come over from his living in Ireland on a mission to the Queen to demand the remission of the first fruits payable by the Irish clergy to the Crown. Swift, who had grown up in Sir William Temple's house and had long been his private secretary, was a Whig, though not a very ardent one. He had, moreover, a bitter hatred for Wharton, who as Lord Lieutenant of Ireland had treated him with neglect. Neither had he been satisfied with the way in which Godolphin received him on a former occasion. Therefore, when he reached London, just at the time of the fall of the Whigs, and found, as he says in the journal which he kept for the friend of his youth, Stella, a girl who had grown up with him at Sir William Temple's and followed him to Ireland, that the Whigs were ravished to see me and would lay hold on me as a twig while they were drowning. He did not feel inclined to hold out his helping hand to them. He saw without sorrow the Whigs lose office, though he confesses to feeling a little shocked at the suddenness of the change, but adds that he does not care if they are all hanged. The Whigs made the greatest efforts to gain swift, especially Lord Halifax, who invited him to Hampton Court and treated him with the greatest respect and kindness. Swift found himself in a position which much gratified his pride, for he was courted on all sides, as Harley too received him with the warm kindness of an old friend. But he distrusted the friendship of the Whigs, who had forgotten him when they were in power, and only remembered him in their distress. Harley and St. John understood both the use he might be to them and how to gain him. Swift was intensely proud, and they treated him as if he were their equal. He was able to feel that great men sought him out and that he did not seek them. Never has any man not in office had so great an influence on public affairs. Harley was in the habit of having little dinners every week of the chief members of the government and a few of their supporters, and Swift was generally present on these occasions. His voice was listened to in everything. He advised and found fault with the ministers with perfect freedom, and shared their most secret councils. Through him they were able to influence the public. He was the greatest master of political pamphleteering there has ever been. With consummate skill and the most withering irony, he showed forth in forcible style the weaknesses of his opponents, and guided public opinion almost at his pleasure. The examiner was at once handed over to his care, and he wrote thirty-two numbers of it in succession. In these his great object was to show that the Whig government under which the country had seemed to rise to such a marvelous pitch of power and prosperity had really brought nothing but misery upon the people." that the resources of the country had been recklessly wasted by an extravagant ministry, and that its money had flowed into the pockets of an unprincipled set of stock-jobbers, that the great general, whom they had worshipped almost as a god, was nothing but a very faulty mortal after all, who had prolonged the war to enrich himself. These and other similar views were set forth week after week in the examiner, with all the subtle wit all the profound irony, all the stirring eloquence of the greatest humorist whom England has ever seen, and did more than anything that Harley and his colleagues could do to destroy the credit of the last government. The Whigs had no writer of equal genius to oppose to Swift. Addison, in his own way as gifted a writer as Swift and a firm Whig, tried what he could do but the genial and graceful critic of literature and society was powerless in the field of politics and soon deserted it. His spectators were read daily by every lady of fashion of the time, but his political writings produced no effect. In Steele, the Whigs had another firm friend, but honest Dick Steele, with his warm, open heart and kindly way of laughing at the foibles of others, as often drunk as sober, was no match for the stern Swift who had no feeling for the weaknesses of others and would crush an adversary as remorselessly as he would forget a friend. A host of Whig pamphleteers tried to answer Swift, but only brought down upon their unhappy heads more bitter sarcasm than before. Swift also superintended the work of a number of other Tory writers. He was courted by all who wished to make friends with the new government and often complains bitterly of the way in which he was pestered with requests of all kinds. In the journal which he kept for Stella and sent her every month, he tells all his experiences, and writes to a friend who he knows will value the smallest detail. The journal gains much interest by the light which all the little personal details throw upon the character of the writer and the manners of the times, as well as upon the great affairs of the nation. The changes in the government are not given any more importance than his own little bodily ailments. The doings of the ministry are not told more carefully than the places where Swift dined each day. End of Section 33